Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everyone? This is George Khalife. We're back with another episode of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm here today with a good friend, Sean Finder, who's the CEO of AutoClose. He actually went from being North America's top, one of North America's top tennis players to being an entrepreneur at the age of 24, started different businesses. So I would say a serial entrepreneur, um, really in the, in the sales, like the heavy sales game. AutoClose is a sales automation platform. He also did this with Exchange Leads. Uh, which you can take a look at. We'll talk about all this today, but thanks a lot for doing this, man. Thanks so much, George. I look forward to being here with you. So tell me quickly, how do you go from playing tennis to being an entrepreneur? <laughs> so the story was I, uh, I I played at a national level, uh, one of the top Canadians, um, had a world ranking at around age 17, 18. And what happens in tennis, I guess like most sports is, when you hit the under 18 and you hit 18, you have to decide, do you want to go the educational route or you want to go and try and become a tennis pro? Um, and this was probably, well, now it's been about 18 years. Um, and back then there wasn't, uh, you know, any tennis player that really made a living off tennis except for Daniel Nestor. So my mm. mom sat me down one day and goes, um, you can, you can try and be a pro. I mean, you are number two in Canada. You can try and be a pro. Um, but if you don't make it, you're going to be a tennis coach, or you can try and go and do your MBA and get an education and go that route. And, uh, I guess uh, I didn't have much of a choice at that point, um, and I went the educational route and did my MBA, and uh, and then taught tennis actually for eight years after I stopped playing competitively. Wow! And and so because I know that you did your um, your MBA at McMaster. Um, usually, I mean, especially for entrepreneurs, uh, and I definitely want to get into the venture side as well. Um, kind of going from sports, and then you 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 wanted to pursue your MBA. Did you know eventually that entrepreneurship is really kind of the, the road that you're going to go on? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting because, you know, I did actually the co-op MBA out at McMaster. And the reason why is, you know, playing competitive tennis my whole life till 18 and then coaching tennis from 18 to about 23, um, I didn't have much work experience. So, you know, I, I, what, what can I really put on my resume? I can only put, I was a tennis coach, but I didn't, you know, so if you go for a sales job, you can't get a sales position. You go for a finance job. I have no finance experience. I've never worked as a bank teller. So um, I ended up doing the McMaster co-op program. So it gave me three work terms um, in finance, which obviously fills up my resume. So that was the reason why I, I chose that route, um, and did the MBA was simply for the work experience, because it was, it was tough to, to go from just playing competitive sports to actually trying to get a job out in Toronto. Okay. So you did that. I guess that makes much more sense. And, and like, I, cause I know all the ventures that you started were mostly in sales. Um, why was that? Like, why did you want to pursue kind of the sales side? So it's a great question. So um, when I taught tennis, I, I taught in Hogs Hollow with a yeah. lot of very, um, I guess you can say, wealthy athletes, etc. And I, you know, it made me have to be very good at networking. So I was very social. Mm. Um, I was always talking to people. You'd have to try and get tennis lessons. You'd have to coach people on the court. And what happened was I did my MBA in finance and I started working with the banks. And it was, I think, the first day I started working. I was working at RB, you know, CIBC at that point in the PNL medium, um, mid, mid size. Um, um, division. And what happened was I was on the elevator and, and there's like five, six people, my boss is on the elevator and, 
everyone's just quiet. And everyone's just staring at the computer screen on the elevator. And it, it was almost like you, you just don't talk to people. You go up, you sit behind your desk, you do your, your reports, your reconciliation, you go down, give it to the traders. And it was just not social. And I was always a, a social guy. Mm-hmm. So after like a week there, I was like, you know, I, I, and I did my co-op. Show, I was just like, I don't know if this is for me. And I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I started my first um, entrepreneurial venture when I was finishing high school and I still do it t- today. Um, so that was kind of what made me, you know, leave the finance route, but don't get me wrong. I think the finance route is the best route to take if you want to become an entrepreneur because you need to know your numbers mm-hmm. and you need to know your financials to even be successful as an entrepreneur. Yeah, man, I totally agree. That's actually something I voice as well. And uh, I had the same kind of uh, mindset as well, just because even if you look at the courses that you want to take, say in commerce specifically, uh, so in business, like with marketing, for example, you can kind of learn, not, not the disroute marketing as an academic profession, but it's more something that you can kind of practice. Whereas with finance or even accounting, which I would say is even more uh, kind of technical, uh, it, it's tough to just inherently know it, you know, or I mean, you can learn financial, uh, personal uh, finances, but, um, it, it, you know, there are certain things, I guess, that you'd have to actually learn. Uh, and it's probably more and more encouraging to do that in university and then go out in the, in the workforce to do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when, especially when you're, when you're owning a business, I mean, you want to a make sure you're profitable. If you don't know how to read a balance sheet and you know, any statements, your reconciliation statements, your monthly statements, your quarterly statements, your year end, if you don't know how to read that and analyze it and learn how to improve, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because, um, you know, sometimes you could price your product and, and you could be going into debt, not knowing that your your pricing strategies off. So having that finance background is really important. I find, um, for any entrepreneur. What was your tipping point? What was that that time when you're like, I guess more of the infliction? So I know that you were you're mentioning when you work kind of in the bank, you just realized quickly it wasn't for you. So for anybody listening, you kind of had that self-awareness, right? I think that's what you're really communicating. You know, you had that deep awareness to say, this is just not for me and I want to try to find something that is. A lot of people are caught in this middle, dude. You know, when uh, they're either doing something now that they really don't like, they don't know how to get out of it, or kind of like your background, it's you, you, know, you come from a sports and all of a sudden, you know, you, you need to sort of navigate your career. So what, what, what do you feel is that tipping point that really made things uh, start going for you? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you the tipping point is, I, I hope he never listens to the podcast, but it was when I worked as a VP of sales for a software company and I, um, I had to report to my boss and I just disagreed with everything my boss was trying to do. I disagreed with our pricing. I disagreed with everything. And I felt like I could run the company better than my boss could at that point. And I said, you know what? Like I have to do it my own. I just have trouble um, taking orders, I guess, from people. And mm-hmm. when, especially when I disagreed with them. So the tipping point was I was working as a VP of sales. I came up with an idea um, around something I learned within that business I was working. So as a, as a VP of sales, when I was doing that, we were working with data and I felt there was a way to produce higher quality data um, at a better price point. And that's when I started working on it while I was working as VP of sales for a year. So I was working, you know, six to 10 at night. I'd work on my side business until it actually was ready to, um, to grow and start, start growing. And that business that you're referring to would that, that would be exchange leads. Yeah. So exchange leads was, it's a simple B2B data platform. So we were similar to the old, I guess, jigsaw or data.com, which is a Salesforce product. Um, it was a crowdsourced product where what we did was, um, people would upload data contacts. We would clean them, validate them, give them credits. For every credit and valid contact they produced for our pool, they would be able to download extra leads. So somebody that had a thousand leads can upload them, and within five minutes they're going to have a thousand credits, and they can have now two thousand leads. And our pool would continue to increase with valid contacts through the community. 
one of the things I find interesting with you is that like while you were working as VP of sales at your previous role, uh, like two things. One, you obviously didn't get along with your with your um, boss at that point, but the idea stemmed from working there, right? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, that's where their difficulty is. They're like, George, I'm motivated. I'm ready to go. I want to start something. I just don't know where to start. Like, how do you, so for you, was it was it kind of lying on your strengths or finding something that you just saw there was a weakness or a gap in and you're like, I can do this better. I can do this myself if I, if I really executed. Yeah, it, it was it was the second one. It was in the latter. It was the weakness and strength. Like we we were buying data, and I would give it to our sales team, and the data quality was just was was terrible. Mm-hmm. And my sales team would go, Sean, these phone numbers are inaccurate. Sean, these emails are inaccurate. I'd be like, I just wire transferred this guy eight thousand dollars to. I'm not going to mention the company, and the data's quality is bad. And I'm like, the company was a billion dollar company. I'm like, if they're if they can't provide high quality data. If I, instead of promoting that I have 40 million contacts and say, listen, I got 10 million that are 99% valid, that I'm real-time validating, and it's going to be higher quality, um, lesser quantity, um, I think there's a market for it. And ideally, I just at that point, I just asked um, an IT guy who's now my partner, and I said, listen, this is my idea. And he's like, well, we can do it. Um, let's start building it. And uh, so that's why I built it um, and planned um, when I was going to leave about eight months before I actually left the company. But I planned on how much I have to save to have six months to pay rent, et cetera, in Toronto and to get my first sale. And then once I said, I told myself once I got my first sale, I was going to quit. Wow. I love that model, dude. That's really, really helpful. Uh, so that, that, that's something else I kind of resonate with is because see, this is, I don't know if you, you, you've seen this, but it's kind of, especially with entrepreneurship, it's like, let's just take a leap and, and we'll figure it out. And I love that quote by Reed Hoffman. I always say it when I get the chance to, um, but the thing too is like, don't just take a leap and have no plan. You know, like Reed, Reed Hoffman's quote is when you jump, you build a parachute on the way down, but at least, you know, you either know how to build one or you have plans to do so. Otherwise you're just going to fall in and with no positive result. So for you, it was like really diligent. Like you were saying, okay, look, I'm going to, I'm going to save for the next six months. I can at least pay my rent. I won't have pressure on, on that. And the only thing I'm focused on is getting a sale. If I show one traction for revenue, I'm going to make the leap. I'm not yeah, going to make a leap, right? Like that's that's your thinking. Exactly. So, you know, especially, you know, you know, everyone that lives in Toronto knows our real estate market. But, you know, downtown, I was living in a two-bedroom condo. And at the time, I I, um, I had a girlfriend who's now my wife. But I had a girlfriend. And, um, you know, she, I can't stop her life and my life for starting a business. So I said to myself, I need six months. I need, you know, whatever it would be, $15,000, $20,000 to save up. Um, and, you know, I was in sales. So I worked as hard as I could. And. I saved up enough money that said, okay, after six months, as soon as I stop, and as soon as I got, and my first sale was actually $49. So mm-hmm. I went from a six-figure job to making $49. I said, as soon as I make my first $49, that was our price point at the starting, um, I'm going to leave. And for that day, I had six months, but within the first 90 days, knowing that you know, I had a good network and I was very social and, and believed in my ability, um, you know, we started, I started, we started making money within the first 90 days. So I didn't have to wait that six months, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs, Think A, they can come up with an idea and just start it, or B, you know, just like the snap of your fingers, you're gonna raise money or get some venture capital. But like raising money is a full time job. It, sometimes it takes over yeah. a year to get money, but people think it just takes a month. So um, you have to have a plan. You mm-hmm. can't just you can't just say I'm gonna I'm gonna quit and start. And I, I see a lot of my my friends, little brothers. They're just I'm just gonna quit and start something. It's it's, it's not easy. If it was that easy, every single person in the world would be a millionaire and an entrepreneur. Yeah. No, that's definitely true, man. Um, especially around around the the cap raising side. But I guess for you, it was more about like let's let's get let's get a client, right? Let's let's really kind of close down a customer. Let's get some revenue. Um, so 
did you did you even have an impetus to raise or, or were you like let's self-fund this thing and then if maybe we get some traction and i need some more runway then i can do a bit of a financing that's a great question so what i actually did was i took a little bit of my salary that i wasn't saving okay. so out of my salary i was making and that was paying i hired one person i hired one person out of eastern europe and serbia and they were my lead developer so for the the eight months i was still working at the company while i was doing all the saving my lead developer was taking a little bit of my salary to develop the product. Mm. So I took a little bit of my salary and I paid him every month for my salary. He was our, my first employee um, and he's, well, he's, a, he's, a, he's a minor um, um, partner, um, but he built the product and I would work all day and I'd be paying him my salary for him to build the product. So once the product was built and then we had our first sale um, and we had a lot of traction, you know, I did a whole strategy, marketing strategy before it. Um, that's when we kind of took the leap. Okay. And so then fast forward, I mean, you did exchange leads for about five years um, and then you, you look to do something else, right? Which is auto close now. Why, why the pivot? Like why the switch? Cause it, they, they seem somewhat similar, except I think auto close is just, it's obviously more automated on that sense. So just trying to understand like why, why make the one, the switch and what led you to want to start auto close? Yeah. And we didn't actually make a switch. Both companies run independently right now. Ah, um, okay. So what we did was exchange leads. Um, we were four, we were four year, three, three years in. We had a lot of big clients. We worked with, you know, Rogers here in Toronto, VMware. Um, we're still a preferred vendor with, with VMware, Microsoft, DHL, Canada Post, et cetera. And what we did was we had a lot of clients that loved our platform and their feedback would be, we love your data. We love your platform, but we don't have anywhere to email it from. So they didn't, they had the data, but they didn't have where to email it from. So, um, as, as we all know, you know, company, instead of paying, you know, uh, huge taxes here in Toronto, we said, let's, let's do some R and D and build a separate product. And that's what led to auto close was our clients said, we want somewhere to email from sales automation was becoming very big at that point. It was just really outreach and sales loft. And I said, you know what, they, they can, they can have the enterprise clients. I'll stick to that SMB and try and steal that market share. And then we built auto close on top of exchange. Leads. So right now exchange leads runs independently. We still run it, but exchange leads is the database that is inside auto close. So it's actually, white labeled inside auto close, but they both run independently. I see. Okay. And so with auto close, when you, when you wanted to kind of start that as well, um, you realize that, that there's more to, to what you're doing at exchanges. Right? I think that, you know, from one, it was lead gen, uh, a bit of an email management tool, but having a CRM component where these all kind of drop, you know, thought of before, or were they, you know, customer feedback, things that you found that you actually needed to, to implement to enhance the product. Well, so auto close is great because auto close was a way for us to you to use something for exchange leads. So originally we were going to build auto close just to use it for ourselves. Got it. Um, because then we can use a database and you know I can press start and you know travel around the world, go on vacation on a weekend, do whatever you want, and everything's being automatically emailed directly from my Gmail. So we started auto close basically to help us at exchange leads. But then we realized, well, if it could help us, it could help everybody. So then we started to really press on auto close. And ideally, auto exchange leads funded the auto close production, but auto close was a lot more expensive to produce than than um, or to build than than exchange leads. That's for sure. And you know, you've been around these these sales platforms for uh, as an aggregate now for probably seven years, right? Yeah. So it's been quite a while. What has surprised you most? Uh, about the sales space that you've been trying to tap into? So it's there's a big change I find with sales leaders nowadays, and that's what we're really trying to focus on. 
Um, nowadays, there's, there's so many different softwares for CRMs, marketing automation, for cold calling, for sales automation, for everything. And I think the biggest change I'm seeing is consolidation in the market. So what I mean by that is salespeople, at the end of the day, want to make money. They don't want to be spending or be a CRM inputter or having to use 10 different tabs at the top of their, their you know, Google Chrome to use different platforms. So what I find is consolidation is the case. So what we've done is we've solved a, a few. We have the database now inside the automation. If it wasn't, a sales leader would have to buy a data and then go get the sales engagement. Um, we've also put now scheduling automation inside AutoClose. We've also put video marketing inside AutoClose. So I find having everything in one place is where the market is going because with so many different softwares out there, a sales leader just does not want to have to you know, go into RFP with 15 different platforms. They want a platform that has everything in one place so their sales people can go in, do everything they need to integrate that with their CRM, but also go out and make money, which is ideally um, the end goal for any sales rep. Amazing. And you actually even wrote a kind of a sales handbook, I would say for, for B2B, right? For B2B sales. Uh, and you can download it for free. Um, if you want to check it out, it's on Sean's uh, LinkedIn profile. Tell me a bit about that. Like what, if you can get people kind of summary or highlight bits of, of some of the things that you really wanted to, to mention with this, uh, with this handbook. Yeah. Uh, so inside the handbook, there's a few things that I, I really want to, where I think the market is going. There's one is, um, your pre, not your company brand, but your personal brand. Um, personal brand is becoming huge um, and it's probably more important than your company brand. So if you're a VP or, or say a sales rep, a regional sales manager, start promoting, not promoting, but start engaging with your people on LinkedIn, but as, at, a, at a personal level and not a company level. Because right. now nowadays buyers want to see who they're buying from. And by you putting videos online and stuff, they feel like they know you. They feel like they're your friend. Um, so personal brand is one thing that we we strive on. Um, we're doing a lot of video because video is huge nowadays. Um, but that's one thing I would say we tried to really push in that book. The second thing is um, email marketing and email sales automation, market automation, you know, emails in general. It's It's been around for a while. So you have to differentiate yourself than the average person is doing emailing. So what we really try and press is social touches in your campaign. Now, what I mean by that is say you want to send an eight email sequence to a prospect in that eight meal sequence, eight email sequence, almost use LinkedIn as your social touch by um, connecting with the prospect you're reaching out to trying to like share, endorse them on LinkedIn, because the more touches you can do without actually sending an email or calling them will help you differentiate yourself from your competitors. So what we do, we, we do that a lot for closing deals. If we have a quote outstanding, um, we'll actually go on and see something that that prospect posted on LinkedIn and we'll comment on it and tag them um, or even um, like something they do. So when they see on their newsfeed, oh, Sean Finder just liked my post. Oh, you know what? I forgot to call Sean about that quote. Let me, let me follow up with that. So we use social touching a lot inside our campaigns. Yeah, that, that's huge. Especially, I mean, the thoughts around video, huge right now on LinkedIn too. Um, you know, uh, for all for all those who use LinkedIn will understand. For those who uh, maybe are not as active, uh, definitely video content right now is being pushed and prioritized. So is like small posts. But to your point, it's just kind of staying on people's radar. Yep. Um, like our sales cycle is pretty long on the M&A side. Uh, we're selling a service. Um, so on the advisory end. So it's not really transactional by, uh, by any nature. It's not, it's not like a quick kind of turnaround. So for us, um, you know, being on, on the founder's radar, 
building that trust early, you know, really solidifying that relationship and more importantly, providing value along the way so that when the time comes, you know, they'll think of, of hopefully our firm versus uh, others in terms of giving that best value. And it's very similar man, to, to what you're saying. Like even when you were saying like liking people's posts, commenting, um, using LinkedIn to, to, to really, you know, create those touch points, but kind of make them also genuine. Um, you know, maybe share an article, a video, whatever it is, just to, to keep that, uh, that relationship alive. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, one thing that we really, we've been almost double downing on this year is like, we don't even want to be known as, you know, the sales automation platform. We want to be known as the content king in sales because content is what's going to drive you to sales. So what we do is we, we do, you know, three blogs a week. We do three videos a week um, and a lot of books and stuff because we want salespeople to come to us as the resource for any sales questions or sales tips or sales value, engagement, et cetera. So that's what we've been really double downing on lately is content and video creation um, because that, that will bring people to you without even selling to them. What's your sales philosophy personally? So my, my philosophy, I mean, I'm all about relationships. Um, I try and build relationships with, with all of my clients. I try and take advantage of, for example, you know, if Toronto, Toronto Raptors won the championship two days ago, I will actually do a campaign strategically to only people in Toronto that might be VP of sales. Mm-hmm. And my first line might be about the Toronto Raptors. Or for example, last week I did one for the St. Louis Blues and I would go on LinkedIn and, and or use our database and only ping people from St. Louis say, you know, something about the Stanley Cup. So you want to make, like I have, I have some of my prospects that call me, we talk hockey for two hours because I'm, I'm a big sports fan. Um, but it's all about building relationships. Even when I played tennis, and 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 got my first three jobs from MBA. It was all about networking where I taught tennis. So I think people need need to really focus on the relationships um, and trying not to sell their product, but more want the prospects to want to buy your product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that man. Relationship based first. Um, I like also how you said it's it's around content, not really um, you know a sales automation platform. I like that kind of perspective. You're, I mean, so at the time you were twenty four. How old are you now? If you don't mind me asking, Sean. Thirty six. Thirty six. When, but you started early in the game as well. You're still a young dude. Um, what advice would you give? Because a lot of people listening might be in their, I mean, I'm 25, so kind of in their mid-20s. Um, when they're starting out, I feel like a lot of, especially early entrepreneurs, here I'm talking 20 to 26, 20, yep. 20 to 28, that kind of range. You're starting out and you know you have these big ambitions, kind of like where you were when you were the VP of sales at that tech company. You realized you can do a better job. How do you stay... I don't know how to construct this, but it's like not let your ego get in the way, but but you you definitively know with with confidence that you can do a better job and you can take the leap. How can you do that while uh, allowing people to to still see you with credibility, professionalism, etc., uh, despite being young? Yes, yeah, so I, I mean the, the the key is to always you know have a plan and have goals, and and don't don't listen to all the noise outside. Like you know when I first started, people were like 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 Sean like. You, you, have, you have a girlfriend for a few years, you're living downtown, you know, you're probably going to have to, you know, you might propose soon, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. you're, you're leaving a six figure job and you're making $49 and you're on EI. Like, why are you <laughs> taking that leap? You know, like, like, why are you, do- yeah, it's so EI is employment insurance, but like, why are you even doing that? And it was like, because I don't, I always look at my life and I don't look one to two years ahead. I look 20 years from now, where do I want to be and what do I want to do? And I wanted freedom and I didn't want to have to report to somebody who I might not have respected. 
And sometimes you go into roles where you don't respect your boss. So what I would recommend is, you know, build up the plan, build up the goal, but don't look short term. Don't even look immediate. Like look at the long term and you're going to sacrifice some stuff. You know, I have to sacrifice the way I, you know, instead of going to a nice restaurant, I'd go an okay restaurant. Instead of going on three trips here, you might go on one trip here. But sacrifice those things early on, especially in your 20s, because um, once you get into your 30s and your mid 30s, <laughs> things definitely change. So I would say um, plan it out. Don't look short term, um, look medium to long term, but uh, but definitely have a plan. And how did you like when you when you were you know uh, having the conversation with your then girlfriend now wife? Um, how how was that discussed? Like I'm just curious because a lot of people also in relationships will have that same kind of difficulty in the in the beginning. And and you said obviously there's a lot of compromise with what you do and you spend your money on. But I'm curious, like how did you balance that with your partner and how did you make it work despite having to do all this stuff? Well, to be perfectly honest, I just did it. But I didn't have much of a conversation. But <laughs> there's honest, no I've, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I've, you know, um, as I said, you know, even before I started Exchange Age, I actually um, brought in. I actually had a few little startups when I was. One was called RSB bracelet. So me and my friend built a relationship status bracelet that was like green, yellow, and red. You go to a bar, and if you're single, you wear the green one. We had like an idea oh, like cool. that. We had initially then. Um, I actually brought in packaging from the Orient. Um, so I would bring in packaging and I distribute to cosmetic companies. And funny enough, um, I've been doing that for 16 years. I still do it to this day. So I still have clients that I've been with 16 years. So I always had the entrepreneur in me, um, but it just, I had to look for the perfect time because, you know, when I want to start, I was still living at my parents' house and I wanted to move out and live downtown Toronto. So I knew I had to have that rent. So it wasn't that right time then. So I knew I had to go somewhere, save up a little bit. Um, but you know, she believed in me since the beginning. Um, and I could have, I, I guess that's, that's my personal, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hustler. I'm a go-getter. I, I work, I've been working 18 hour days. I'm always working. I'm always emailing, I'm always replying. So, um, she knows, she knew, she knows me and she knew, uh, <laughs> she knew, she knew it was definitely something that, uh, I would build and I would build really quick. So bread and butter entrepreneur, that's really the, uh, the formula here. Be one from the start. And you'll you'll be one at the end. So I like that. And if you if you look across what you've done so far, what would you say has been the biggest challenge for you? The biggest challenge is uh, I would say a sometimes finding the right people and the right culture um, for my business. What I mean by that, especially in sales, uh, I find it's tough to find a sales a good salesperson. Now, if you do, they're going to work at you know a Salesforce or an IBM or a Microsoft. Um, and if you're a startup like us, where you're bootstrapped, um, sometimes you can't afford to pay somebody six figures. And even if you have to pay somebody, you know, a lot less than that, the problem is as a startup, you have to give somebody at least three, four months of training. So here you might try three salespeople, you each, you pay them each three months of training on salaries, and then they just don't work out or they find a higher paying job. I find salespeople are always moving for the next best thing. Um, so finding good, um, salespeople has always been a challenge and, and now that we're really growing auto clothes, like we're just growing tremendously is like trying to get to that next step. So um, what we're doing right now is we're doing a huge hiring spree um, to try and get us the next step. And, um, and obviously, you know, to try and compete with the, the bigger people in our space. So I would say scaling is one. And the second is finding the right people for our sales position. What do you look for in salespeople when you're hiring? So funny enough, I've, I've, recently could have done it so much. I actually look now on a resume. I look for someone that's worked at a bank hmm. and you want to know why is because anybody that's worked at a bank 
has already went through a vigorous training program. If you work at any of our top five banks here in Canada or in the US, banks train people. They train people properly. So you go through a two, three training on how to cold call, on how to email, on how to do this, and what your signature be, what your out of office should be. So when they come into your organization, you don't have to pay for the training. They've already done it. So I always look for somebody that's worked at a bank. And the second thing is if they play a sport. And the reason why is I find anybody that's competitive or has been in a competitive spirit or played a sport, they want to win or they hate to lose. So you can want to win or you can hate to lose. And that's why those are the two things to look for. Someone that plays competitive sports and someone that's worked at a bank. I really like that, man. That's uh, that's very good. I did not expect the bank one first, but I can really see why after you were explaining it. Um to have a bit of corporate experience yeah goes, goes hand in hand that's something i'll echo as well by the way that i um because i started my career at the tsx um and i loved it like i mean three years really were were really good foundations to start my career um really good network that was made learned a lot from a really kind of formalized process um obviously very regulated uh you know i guess a lot of things that have to go through when you're making decisions like any big corp but when I moved to, to Sanford, which is a, more of a boutique firm, kind of felt the same way. And I, I don't think I would have done it the other way around. So because I got that kind of formalized training for about three and a half years, um, it really goes well when you go to a smaller firm because then you, you like more of that pressure and challenge is put on you to do it. Yeah. You know, and you need that kind of maturity to, to be able to do that. Otherwise, you're, uh, you know, you know, you know, this like with smaller firms, you don't have the bandwidth to be able to, to, to let someone, you know, train for six months or a year. Exactly. They, they have to hit hit the pavement right away. Like there isn't, there isn't a lot of time. Yeah. And then when people ask me like, like, what do you expect? I'm like, I'll th- I always tell people, even though I bring on, I'm like, you're going to have two options here. You're going to either sink or you're going to swim, but you're going to have to get in and get dirty and sink or swim. So, and that's the, that's the way I've lived my life. Every position. I mean, I went from finance thinking I'd never get out of finance because I've been in it. I'm having an MBA in it. I was like, how am I ever going to get into sales and become an entrepreneur? And I went in for, you know, I went to Robert Half and the guy looked at me and goes, why are you fine? He's like, you should be like, you should be sales. I'm like, well, I, let, let's do it. So you, you wait for the opportunity, but um, definitely um, you, have to, you, have to, you have to know your limits um, within that. And what has influenced you so far, like in terms of, of your career path, books you've read? What would you say have been things that really have shifted your, your perspective, your inspiration, motivation? See, for me, I, I, I love... I love the freedom. I, don't get me wrong. I love to work. I, and, and the one thing about now that I own my own company is before when I worked at the banks and stuff, I go in and it was like, it was a nine to five at five o'clock. I didn't want to work. You know, I, I didn't have any passion for it. And the one thing that makes me keep going is I, I can literally work for my company 24 seven. There's always something to do. And I look forward to when I'm a, like, even when I go on vacation, or I don't work for three days. Like I start craving to work again. And that's, that's what mm-hmm. I, I really want to tell people is um, you're, you're better off being happy with what you do than being somewhere for your whole life doing something you don't really enjoy. And I have a lot of friends that don't enjoy what they do and they've, they've, they own really successful companies that could be in construction or something. But um, for me, it was just about the freedom. And, you know, now I finally found something after years of schooling and years of working that uh, I can wake up every morning and, and be excited for what I do and what I'm yeah. growing. Well, that's what I like about your story too, in particular, is because I think it more people can resonate with it. You know, it's not like, and there's nothing wrong about this next example, but you know, it's it could be disheartening to someone who's, say, like as a teller right now, um, you know, not really enjoying it. If that's the case, looks to his friend who or her friend who's, um, I don't know, twenty, twenty one, twenty two, just raised ten million dollars for the software company. You know, you're sitting there, you're like, fuck, like how how did they do that? You know, and 
a lot of people, it's not that they don't have the motivation. It's just they don't really have the blueprint or they think it's it's it's, uh, it's not within reach because they don't really have good examples of other people who who have been in their situation before and navigated outside of it. Yeah, and I, and I think people just need to find out what they want to do. I, I also, like, I don't agree with, you know, looking at the person next to you because especially now with social media, like, I mean, yeah, so every, everyone's a billionaire. I mean, you go on social media, you go on, Insta, you go on Instagram, <laughs> and influencers are, everyone's just tagging like their bank account and stuff. And it's like, listen, not everyone's a billionaire. Not everyone's making a million dollars a year. So oh, I don't think you should compete against the person next to you, but keep focusing on what you want to build and what you want to grow. And it'll happen. Um, because I know, I, I mean, I was, I was one that when I was younger and I was like, Oh, look at this guy. Like he's starting this and he just raised this for this company. And it's like, you know what? Half the people that raise money, like not every company that raises money becomes a billion, the next a unicorn company. A lot right. of them go under and a lot of them give up 90% of the equity. They only own, they only mm -hmm. own 10%. So don't ever look at the person next to you. Focus on you, focus on your company, focus on your goals. And, um, more importantly, focus on your product and not your clients focus right on your product and keep building your product. And all your clients will keep coming. A hundred percent, man. I love that. Like product always beats mar good marketing, you know, uh, number one and, and two about the comparison, which which is tough on, on social, right? Because everything's in front of you. Uh, but it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's just like remind yourself that also what you see is not always the reality, um, you know, and people always show you what they want. It's not what how they always live. Um, so it's not like everybody's on a, on a beach resting all day, right? Like that's not. Uh, yeah. That, that really isn't the, the, the real picture here. Yeah, and the funny thing is, if you look on Instagram, it's like, okay, you have like, okay, you look on one day, and like 10 people are on vacation. Well, guess what? You have 5,000 friends. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like 0.05, whatever, 10 out of 500, 5,000 friends are on vacation. But in your mind, you're thinking, oh, why aren't I on a vacation? Everyone yeah. else in the world's on vacation. But no, they're taking their one vacation a year. You're already taking your two. You're probably going on more vacation. So don't ever look at the person beside you. Focus on yourself. 100%, man. I love that message. Last thing before we end this, dude, is, is what, what, and I know we covered this, but um, you know, kind of from the heart, like what do you, what, what advice would you give to someone who is in that predicament, uh, given, you know, what you've learned so far? I would say the, the, the I'm going to give this advice and it's something that I learned with my first company with exchange leads. Um, and this would, it would have saved us a lot of time and a lot of money. Okay. Focus. And we just talked about it a little bit, as we said, focus on your product. When I, when I was with exchange leads, we didn't focus on building out the product and adding more features. We focused on bringing in the clients. And it took up so much time focusing on bringing in the client and not continuing to build on our product. What I took from that was now with my new product, AutoClose, that's scaled within, you know, in a year, we did more revenue than exchange we did in three, was we focused on the product. So we continued to add new features. We continued to add new integrations. We continue to ask our clients what product they want. We don't care about our clients coming in and, and, and joining. We will at some point. But we continue to build on the products and the clients will come. Don't worry about the client and then build on the product. So make sure you focus on the product before your clients. You heard it here first, folks. Where can people connect with you, man? Um, I'm always on LinkedIn. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. Um, if you want to email me, if you have any sales questions, feel free to email me at Sean. That's S-H-A-W-N at autoclose.com. Um, and, um, and you can follow our LinkedIn page. We post a lot of content, you know, two to three blogs a week on sales. Um, we do podcasts, we do videos, everything. Um, and if you have any questions about AutoClose or you, you want to look at a sales engagement tool or a built-in database, um, you go to autoclose.com as well. Thank you so much, brother. Really appreciate this. Um, I know there's a lot of gems in this one and, uh, we'll definitely catch up in person soon. Thanks, George. Have a good one. Yeah.